This is the Jets-Centric Podcast, your home for Winnipeg Jets, talk, thoughts, and takes. Welcome back to the Jet Centric Podcast. My name is Ryan Faith, and on today's episode, we have AJ interviewing Ken Weeb of the Winnipeg Sun and Weeb's World on the TSN Jets broadcast. After that, Daniel speaks with Andrew Berkshire, analyst for Sportsnet and the Winnipeg Free Press. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Hey there, Jets fans. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Jet-Centric Podcast. I'm AJ, and I'm here tonight speaking with Ken Weeb of the Winnipeg Sun. You will know him from uh, uh, Weeb's World and uh, the Intermissions. Uh, if you don't know who he is, then you've never watched a Jets game. So, uh, Ken, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, to chat with me for a bit. My pleasure, AJ. Thanks for having me. Yeah, not a problem. So um, be- before we started recording here, I, we talked about uh, some of the things I wanted to go over. And the first thing was that I always think is a fun uh, tie-in is how you got into the industry and, and maybe even like specifically the sports side of thing and, and hockey, if you have like a hockey background. Uh, so, uh, yeah, how did you get into to the media world and, and find yourself where you're at now with the Jets and the Sun? Yeah, you know what, AJ? I mean, I'm like most uh, young young hockey players. I had dreams of playing in the NHL as a young player. I was a, was a pretty good player as a minor Minor uh, minor hockey kid. I was fortunate enough to be listed by the Subcurrent Broncos. Went to a couple Western League camps, but uh, by the time I hit junior at the age of 17 with the Winkler Flyers, I uh, I knew I was probably uh, not going to be making the show anymore. I think it's a, it was a pretty eye-opening moment when you're a young kid. But uh, I was a guy who was always interested in the game, a student of the game. That allowed me to to go on to the University of Regina where I played a couple of years of uh, college hockey with the Regina Cougars. I, I should say I was more of a bench warmer there, but uh, <laughs> my, my, my junior coach was uh, was knew what I wanted to do. He knew that I was into journalism, and uh, Regina was a very good school for that program, and I got, I got two bonus years out of that, but uh, spent a lot of more time. I only played eight games my first year and 60 in the second, but uh, my, my coach my first year, Kevin Dickey, saw me as more of a student of the game. He thought I could get into coaching, but uh, for me, I ended up going the other route and going in, into the media route. Uh, tying into that, when I was 19, living at home uh, in Altona, small town, uh, hour, hour and change, uh, south of Winnipeg, uh, I was able to my, get my first full-time job in the newspaper industry at the Red River Valley Echo. Uh, it's a weekly newspaper, and at the age of 19, uh, they gave me a shot at uh, writing some stories and I found that I, I love doing it and uh, lo and behold I've been able to turn it into a career and I mean I always tell people uh, when they ask the question uh, I was fortunate to I was into writing I was into English and and one of the reasons why I listened to my uh, high school English teacher maybe a little more closely than than some might at that age uh, when you still have dreams of playing pro sports in your head was that uh, my English teacher Peter Hildebrandt also taught me how to throw a curveball when I was 13 years old. So uh, when he was reciting Shakespeare, uh, I listened a little bit more closely, and 
I mean, that opportunity at the uh, at the Echo was was neat. Uh, I love the job. I essentially got to be the sports editor of a weekly paper at 19, but I was living in my parents' basement, uh, making a thousand dollars a month gross. Uh, so after taxes, I think it was 880. So I knew uh, I wasn't going to be living off that amount. So uh, I sort of focused, honed in my studies in that field, and. Uh, went to a great school and got a really good education and was fortunate enough to have a couple great internships, uh, both with the free press. And then I went also, I was a researcher on Off the Record with Michael Landsberg. I uh, learned a lot at both of those jobs. And uh, as it turns out, in the Winnipeg industry, it's a small world, just like it is uh, in our in our walk of life. Uh, Judy Owen went on a mat leave in August of 2000. Uh, I, took a, I took the one-year position, and I've been there ever since. So... Uh, it's interesting to you know still see Judy up in the press boxes, and if it wasn't for her uh, having a second child, uh, who knows where I'd be right now. But I knew I was interested in sports. Uh, I wanted to be a play-by-play guy when I was younger. I was fortunate enough to meet Danny Gallivan uh, when I was young. Uh, Elmer Hildebrand, who was my uh, uh, my dad's boss at uh, Golden West Broadcasting, he brought in Danny Gallivan for a for a sportsman's dinner, and I was I was a young kid. I got his autograph and. Uh, always wanted. I always had an interest in that side of things, but uh, shifted towards the writing a little bit later on as a, as a later teenager, and I really found a passion for it for sure. You, you mentioned your your early hockey days. I'm curious uh, about uh, two things. Uh, have you, did you ever score five goals in a game? Did you ever <laughs> manage that feat? <laughs> uh, I, I, as an Adam, I scored a lot of goals. Oh, uh, I go. was fortunate. Uh, I don't know that I had five in a game, but uh, I. My best friend's dad kept the stats, and my my most productive year was an 81 goal season. So I, I I'm, I'm no I was no Patrick Laine, but uh, when I was uh, when I was that 11, 12, 13, I was I was a big kid. I was like about five foot eight before I was 13. I was always one of the bigger guys. I was one of the few guys in in my hometown that really had a good slap shot. But uh, as we went along, uh, people not only passed me in the size, but uh, my my shot became below average. And it was pretty evident that my hands were made for typing and not for scoring goals. But uh, I always loved the game, and I feel really blessed that I've been able to find a way to stay involved in it. Well, it sounds like a few of you guys in, in media, in, in Winnipeg media, have uh, have a hockey background. I'm thinking that at some point you, you guys need to have a, a big game of shinny and, uh, you know, di- divvy up uh, the sticks in the middle, you know, throw them uh, each uh, one way to, to, to make the teams. Because I know Murat's a decent player, and uh, Sean Reynolds says that uh, he played at a decent level and, Got to meet Char when he was at a WHL camp, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. So that that might be kind of a fun thing. You guys should uh, look at that, and then you guys can all uh, trash talk each other and on the Twitterverse afterwards. So that'd be fun. 100%. And the other connection, too, I mean, Shane's gone now, but yeah. Shane Knighty and I went to those camps. I mean, we played against each other as kids. Uh, he was in Nipua. What people don't know about Shane, who was an NHL defenseman for a long time, uh, at our age as teenagers, he was Mario Lemieux. He was a a big skilled forward that scored a lot of goals and he and I went uh, to Swift Current Broncos camp together and obviously we know that one of us went a little further than the other but it was a neat connection uh, we had always been friends and it was neat for me to in one of my first jobs was covering the moose uh, for us to reconnect when he played with the Grand Rapids Griffins and then later on going on to the you know to play in the NHL and I was there in 2011 in Vancouver at game seven when when the Bruins won the Stanley Cup uh, over the Canucks in Game 7, I mean, uh, the riot was not great to see, but uh, for me, I just felt it was important. I mean, at that time, the Moose were the uh, farm team for the Canucks, and there were a lot of players that I knew from covering them, and 
I knew that I was going to be an NHL beat writer, and I wanted to see the game at its highest level. And it was a pretty neat, uh, neat moment to see uh, see live and in person for sure. That's awesome. Okay, well, we're going to switch gears here uh, for those uh, listening to us. Uh, we don't have a ton of time, so I want to kind of move on to some uh, somewhat Jets-related things, more more just the, the hockey side of things. But uh, thank you for sharing your, your story there. That's uh, always fun to kind of hear the, the backstory, or I like to say origin story. I like to think of, like, Wolverine movies or something. So <laughs> anyhow, um, so uh, the, one of the questions I wanted to ask you about was, because you, you get to see it and you've been doing it for a while, too, and, and living it in some way. Um, there's an old school of thinking about hockey and there's a new school. Everyone's saying the, the league is getting younger, it's getting faster, it's getting more skilled. Yet, you know, the old game, you know, uh, you see a lot more hitting, a lot more fighting, a lot more kind of grit, the role players. Uh, and I think the Jets have, uh, sort of have the combination of, of that, of with the, the skill that they have. But sometimes, you know, more, Maurice's way of thinking, Seems to be a bit more old school. I think he's a bit known for that, and I think he would he would uh, like gladly take that on. I don't think uh, that's something that he would uh, balk at to to be uh, noted as a person like that. So uh, when you're looking at the game now, and and what it was, do you think uh, maybe the best way uh, to get the most out of a team is you know from column A or column B, or is it actually maybe some uh, some happy medium where there is some some things that we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater if if you're, you know, an analytics person, and also if you're an old school person, you shouldn't just kind of balk maybe at the, some some of the new new thinking. Uh, what do you, what do you think is getting the the best results, at least in present in 2018? We'll see in 2030 what it looks like. But but right now, what do, what do you see? Sure, AJ. I mean, it's no secret the Jets have evolved as a franchise, and Paul Maurice's thinking has evolved. And I think that some people like to put him into a box as old school only, but I mean, let's not forget that it was Maurice that first was, was open and receptive to the idea of trying Nick Batan on the fourth line and using him on the second power play. Obviously, it didn't have the same results that some people may have liked, but, I mean, I think he's kept his ideas pretty open, and I think the Jets have evolved into a highly skilled, fast hockey team, and it was by design. It wasn't just, uh, I mean, it was part of his thinking was that's why the Jets took that step back after getting swept by the Anaheim Ducks in the first round of the playoffs, uh, they inserted and injected a lot of skill into their lineup and, and slowly, slowly moved some of those uh, older, gritty players out of the lineup and replaced them with young, skilled players. And, I mean, too, just look, look no further than the recent road trip uh, ever since Mason Appleton's been up. Uh, that fourth line is seeing a little bit more ice time, and they've been very effective. So, I mean, obviously... Do you need some guys that are willing to go to the dirty areas and play a physical style of game? Yes, but, I mean, that's where the merger of the analytics and the and the old-school thinking has come with the Jets. I mean, Adam Lowry's line uh, is a great example. I know some people would like to see more skill on that line, but, I mean, if you're looking at underlying metrics, uh, Adam Lowry's line last season was, uh, was one of the best, uh, you know, for the Jets, and uh, I mean, it was a top 10 line in the NHL in terms of underlying metrics. You know, obviously, uh, the sample size was uh, condensed because Lowry missed a lot of time with injury, but right. I mean, he's still been able to, to keep that going. But I mean, also, too, the other thing, uh, the other, I think the flaw in in the character judgment of Paul Maurice is that he can't coach skilled players. I mean, Mark, look at what, look how Mark Shifley has flourished under his, under his watch. I understand that, that people think that Mark Shifley would have been a elite player under any head coach, but I mean, look at how he's blossomed, and look at Blake Wheeler, at a time when most people were expecting him to regress, Blake Wheeler is 
uh, putting up numbers, career best numbers last year, and I mean on pace for another uh, ridiculous amount of assists again this year. And uh, he's spoken quite openly and candidly about how Maurice has helped him take his game to the next level. So uh, I do. I mean, obviously every coach uh, uh, has either flaws or things they can improve on, but. I mean, I think from being around him, uh, AJ, I think Paul Maurice is a pretty, pretty bright hockey mind, and uh, he's not stuck in old school thinking, uh, no matter what some, some people on social media might think. Yeah, I, I'm, I'd be one of those people to at least say that there's elements of that still. And like just most recently, we were talking about the the road trip, just you know the Brendan Lemieux, uh, Patan playing really well, and and Lemieux getting the start. But uh, but I do hear what you're saying, and I I try and give him credit where it's due, even though you know there's things that I I don't like but i mean he's, he's not there to please me anyhow he's there to coach coach the hockey club but from from the outside looking in uh, when i see any of those old school things that seem like they might be counterproductive to the skill that's on the team then i kind of balk at that uh, uh, a little bit but he is also the coach that that gave us the that first line of truba morrissey he didn't have to leave that he could have spread around that talent and that's been um you know an amazing uh, first pairing and then he's also the one that, uh, like Patan is, you, you know what a lightning rod he is. He's also the coach that put Patan with Connor and Wheeler for eight games when I believe his Brian Little was hurt uh, two seasons ago right. or whatever it was. So he was uh, that person. So I try and give him credit. I'm like, yeah, he did try some things. It just, um, yeah, it, it's not all to, all to my taste, but there's all, obviously getting to the, the conference finals is, is to everyone's taste, you'd think. So <laughs> if uh, if it works in the end, it's hard to argue against it, um, but anyhow, we'll, we'll move on from there. I think uh, the the coaching styles and all that stuff would be a, a conversation to itself. So we'll we'll move on. Um, so now my next question for you is: when you're reporting stuff like whether it's uh, doing the Weaves World or or writing uh, or even on Twitter, how how do you balance out your opinions about stuff versus the facts? Like, because uh, I think sometimes when people hear media say something, they go, "That's your opinion," and I don't like your opinion. You're wrong. Where you may just be, you know, reciting what the coach said or what he did or or, or what you predict that they're going to do. Um, uh, the closest example I could give is just chatting with Murat before the season started. Uh, he said that he sees the lineup of having Wheeler and Shifley together, but then he also said, yeah, he'd be open to splitting them up. But then he would consistently, every time he made his lines, would have them together because he's like, this is what I think the coach is going to do. He wasn't necessarily saying that that's the most optimized lineup or anything like that or what he would do, although it's obviously worked last year and, and into this year. So uh, how do you balance out the, your, your opinions and the, uh, and uh, just when you're reporting the facts? Is that a hard thing to do? Yeah, you know what, I, I don't – I mean, maybe it comes with experience. I mean, I've been covering hockey in this town since since 2000, and I've been covering the Jets since the beginning. And, I mean, I'm fortunate to be around a great deal. I don't get to all the games like the broadcasters do, but, I mean, most years I'm in – I'm in the building for 65 to 75 games plus the playoffs and uh, obviously around the team on almost a daily basis. So, I mean, you do uh, learn a few more things from being around the team on a more regular basis, or at least I hope that I do. You, <laughs> it's important in this business to have your ears open at all times, but uh, at the same time, I think that because I was fortunate enough to play the game at a high level, I I understand how hard the game is. I think uh, – I mean, I'm not afraid to be critical, but I'm also not going to uh, take a guy to task for, for no apparent reason. I mean, I think uh, the NHL is one of the toughest leagues to play in of any professional sport, and uh, the game is very easy from both the sidelines and from the press box perch where I sit. So, 
Um, I mean, too, you have to you have to be paying attention, and I mean, do you strike a balance at some point? Sure, but I mean, I think it's important uh, for your credibility and and for uh, I mean, I mean, people respect you if if you have an opinion and stand by it. I mean, but it, it, you have to you know put in the work in terms of uh, your research and and past history. And I mean, that's where one of the reasons why I think it's it's helpful for me that I covered the American Hockey League for nine years i covered the last year the ihl when the moose were here and i know a lot of i know because like you mentioned earlier it's becoming so much of a young player's game uh, i do understand that element better than most because i saw uh, players like nick patan and and people of of that nature uh sometimes struggle with the adjustment to the pro game i i mean it's obviously different between forwards defensemen and goaltenders but I mean, Corey Schneider was a very good goaltender for a long time. Uh, always thought he was ready, but I mean, I saw his first two months uh, be a big struggle coming out of college, and I also saw him by the end of year three know that he was ready to to advance to the National Hockey League level and become a number one guy. I mean, obviously, it's a tough time for him right now in terms of his numbers and and play. But I mean, this is a guy who is a Vesna finalist. But you understand that it takes some time, uh, even for the best players, to advance like look at josh morrissey uh some jets fans were uh ready to call his draft uh, selection a bust uh, after one year in the american hockey league but he's blossomed into the jets most consistent defenders so uh, i mean i think it's also changed in the business i mean in the newspaper side i mean we know almost all of manitoba there's a lot of armchair gms and coaches and everyone's watching the game so you do have to inject some opinion because Everyone already saw what happened, so you do have to tell them what happened, but you also have to try to tell them why these things are happening and why certain things maybe haven't happened uh, as quickly as some would like. I mean, Sammy Niku is a great example. Uh, is Sammy Niku ready to be a full-time NHLer? That, that's still up for debate. There's, there's no debate that his offensive game, uh, his skating and his vision are at a, uh, at a top six level already, but uh, the defending element, I mean, that's something that he – is working on and working incredibly hard on. I mean, I think he will continue to blossom. And uh, I mean, you talked about predictions earlier. I mean, I think that there could be an opportunity. I think there would be an opportunity for Sammy Niku to go out and steal a regular job in the top six before the year is over. But he might need to spend a little bit more time in the American League before making that happen. And although he probably doesn't think that's the best place for him, but if he's playing 25 minutes a game, uh, that could help him in some of those areas that he's looking to be better at, like all young players are. I mean, we saw the other night, paired with Jacob Truba, uh, Sammy Niku looked like a different player than on another pairing. I mean, that's just the way it goes when you're playing with, with a security blanket uh, in Truba, who's played some of his best hockey of his career the last uh, last three games or so. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I can I can hear the airplanes in the in the background. I wasn't going to ask you about this, but just on, no, no, you're fine. On, you're fine. On, on a personal level, uh, how was that that trip to Finland? What what was that like for for you uh, personally? We all you know heard the whole line A story. We you know we heard the there. I was the, one of the people talking about the vest line and the Niku uh, snubs in it. But uh, how was the the non snub for for Ken Weeb? What, what was that like for you? Yeah, you know, it was. I've never been to Europe before, AJ. So for me to get over there to to see the passion level, uh, I mean, and it was it was neat to see. I mean, the building's packed. You got a whole smorgasbord of jerseys. You got some people that are there to see the Finns. You got people that are just pumped to see the NHL. Uh, just from talking to people around town, I mean, there were Jets fans 
not just local. There were people coming in from all over the world. Uh, someone from uh, the Ukraine, a, a transplanted Winnipegger was there. There was someone from Sheffield, England, who just became a Jets fan kind of randomly. Uh, I mean, it was neat to see the passion in the building. We know that the Finns love hockey. We've seen their, them at the World Juniors, at the World Championship. Like, It's funny. We talk about growing the game globally. Hockey is a strong sport in Finland, but growing the NHL game was the important element. And I mean, when Laine was growing up, he looked up to Ovechkin. Now there's kids in Finland growing up that want to be Patrick Laine and Sebastian Ajo yeah. and guys of that nature. I mean, not that they didn't have those guys before. They had Solani, but, I mean, there's more Finnish stars than ever before. So to see that passion was really interesting. And, and for me, I mean, the, one of the highlights was uh, was spending uh, three hours in the afternoon in uh, Tampa in Laine's hometown with Jeppo Newman and the uh, Jets 1.0 defenseman. Uh, Tim Campbell from NHL.com. He covered the Jets uh, for the free press for a long time. Uh, he knew Teppel from from back in the 90s. Uh, he arranged it. Teppel picked us up from the train station and, uh, you know, was basically our tour guide for three hours. And, and that tour included a, a three-hour, a, a brief stop at the Finnish Hockey Hall of Fame uh, on a day where it was closed. Uh, he talked to, He's talked his way into the Hall of Fame, which is a little bit easier to do when you're a member of the Hall of Fame. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, it was really interesting. I mean, I wanted to get a sense from where Line is from. We all know about the shot and about the ability and about the personality, but it was neat to get a glimpse of what his hometown is like and, and to go to the building where he played and want to finish championship. And uh, it was really, uh, really a neat thing to, to see. I mean, it was, yeah, it was, it was a special kind of thing. You, you don't know how often you're going to get over for a trip like that and, I uh, was listening to Newman and talk about how what it was like when the Jets had training camp. Uh, I mean, in the 90s out there, it was it was kind of a neat or part of their training camp. Uh, it was neat to see his reaction years later in the, the scenario with, I mean, Liney obviously uh, going out of his mind after the five-game pointless drought with the hat trick on when a couple hours earlier, Kimi Solani tells uh, three Winnipeg reporters that he has a Heinz 57 catch-up syndrome uh, where you have to t- keep tapping the bottle, and once the ketchup starts coming out, uh, all of a sudden it's going to pour out, and lo and behold, uh, 28 days later, Lani had scored 18 goals in a month. So yeah. uh, it, was, it was a fairly timely comment from uh, from the Finnish Flash, and yeah, it was a, it was a really uh, neat overall experience for sure. That's awesome. I, I love the idea of you being chauffeured around by Tempo Newman, and that's, uh, that's great of, uh, of all the people. They just not... You know, just some Joe Blow, but uh, actually get a Hall of Famer uh, to, yeah, to was, take care of. That's and, pretty cool. And Temple couldn't have been a kinder person. I mean, I I knew of him, obviously. I watched him as a kid growing up, and he was always one of those players you appreciated as a fan of hockey. But, uh, I mean, he's, he's a guy who was the glue guy. He's keeping guys together. Uh, he doesn't want, like, the spotlight, but uh, just an all-around great person. And, uh, I mean, it was neat to see... I mean, he treats you like you're his next door neighbor, but he's really finished royalty in a lot of ways when it comes to comes to hockey. So right. that was pretty neat. I, I had great appreciation for I had a great appreciation for him before, but uh, he certainly took that to another level. I couldn't have been kinder. Days later, I thanked him again, and and uh, he was just very kind and uh, just a genuine, a great human being. That's awesome. I, I think I don't know if it's uh, the same person, but the the UK fan that you mentioned from Sheffield. I think we may have had him on the podcast. We did have somebody uh, from the UK, uh, but I know there was a couple stories going on about some, some Jets fans that had made the trip. So uh, we Ben made... Gray or was it Ben Gray or no? No, it wasn't Ben Gray. Ben Gray was the one that I think Global did the article on, right? So 
this was um uh the he has the same name as the the PR guy for the Jets. Oh, okay, there you go. Uh, whose name is of course escaped me and people are probably yelling at their phones right now. Uh <laughs> tell me the answer. Okay, um moving along. Um so we're, what are we at, 27 games into the season here now. Um, so we talked a little bit about the lineup and, and how, you know, it's it's made up of uh, how what Maurice uh, sees there and, uh, you know, Fatan sitting and Appleton gets in and, and stuff. We're just going to, you know, that's peripheral to, to the conversation. But um, with that, when we're looking at the season, still pretty young. Well, I guess maybe a third in, right? Um, sure. How much do you think is still – the coach and the coaching staff really figuring out what they have, what they want to do, who is what they think they're going to be, what level are they at um, coming back, like uh, if they've, you know, dropping off or anything, um, have they bounced back. Uh, do How much of it is them figuring it out and how much of where we're at after 27 games is part of probably a bigger plan that they had a sense of what, what these 82 games were going to look like, who these players were going to be like. For instance, I'll, I'll just, I know I'm kind of rambling here, but thinking of, okay. say, um, uh, getting Niku into the lineup, was it always going to be, you know, probably a project, people projecting that Kulikov wouldn't be healthy enough to be playing enough, uh, likely, you know, you, you face another injury, and by this point in the season, is Niku up, and that was, you know, foreseen and foretold already, or is there still, you know, a, a whole bunch of, uh, yeah, just sizing up to see what it is because the the Jets are a playoff team they were you know an amazing playoff team last year we know that they should be a playoff team this year so can we just kind of get by these first whatever 50 games uh just taking temperature of everything and then you know try and peak with your best lineup at the time when it matters the most is that is that kind of the way that you know you think you get the sense that it's planned out or what Sure, AJ. Every, every year is different. I think, uh, I mean, Paul Maurice always likes to say, uh, I mean, there's a lot more players written in pen than in pencil than it were two, three years ago. So, I mean, but there are still always pieces on the periphery that are uh, in flux. I mean, going into the year, we knew there was a battle for the 12th, 13th, 14th forward positions. Uh, Christian Veselainen won a job, but uh, I mean, I'm Six weeks later, he was uh, back in Yokerit, and I mean, I certainly don't don't uh, blame him for that. He had the out clause for that reason, but I mean, based on the injuries that we've seen, Veselainen might have been able to be in the lineup. So there was a calculated risk on that on that part. So I think there was some uncertainty going into the year around his game. Uh, Nick Patan obviously was a guy who was in a battle for a job. I mean, look at Marco Dano. Uh, a massive uproar when he was put on waivers, but now he's back in the organization. I mean, this is a guy that needs some playing time. He's had a little bit of upheaval in his uh, professional life here in the last uh, six weeks or eight weeks, but he's a guy who can play a valuable role uh, in a depth role down the road. Uh, I mean, uh, as far as Niku goes, I expected him to get a shot at some point before the season was over to win the job. Uh I mean, I understand that some fans would prefer to have him playing alongside Dustin Bufflin right now, but I just think that Niku's not quite ready for top four minutes at the NHL level. Uh, and rather than have him play those seven to nine minutes on the third pairing, it's better for him right now to be in the American League. I mean, it's a good league. He's going to learn a lot there, and that's not to say that he can't still make an impact on this team before the year is over, especially 
Uh, he's the kind of guy that could be very good come playoff time, given his uh, offensive capabilities. But, I mean, every year is different. I mean, look at Kyle Connor last year. Uh, uh, some people thought when he was banished to the minors that it might be three months before he's back. Uh, he's back in the lineup. Not only does he make an impact, uh, he's not a fourth-line player. He's a first-line player. So uh, some some guys develop at a quicker pace, and I understand that some people would say that Connor deserved to be on the team out of training camp last year too. But yeah. uh, I would caution that. Uh, he was not quite as opportunistic during training camp as he was the year prior when he made the team. And uh, his game really went to the next level by having the opportunity to play those first-line minutes uh, in the American League and become a dominant player and uh, and then continue to grow. I mean, uh, the fact that he was able to become not just a, not just a guy who plays with Shifley and Wheeler, but a driver, uh, I think that's... I don't know that it would have happened that quickly without the extra time uh, in the American League. And I, I mean specifically the time where he got sent down after game 19 or 20. But even having to go back and face some adversity and and when you don't make the team the year when you expect to make the team, uh, sometimes, I mean, not that, he's not a guy who has ever had his work ethic questioned, nor should he. He's an incredibly hard worker, an incredibly talented player. But sometimes when you go through a little bit of a tough time, uh, it helps you in the long run, and I see the same thing for Niku. I know that all play from my experience being at the American League level, the sooner that a young player can wrap his head around the fact that, of course, you would prefer to be in the NHL, making NHL money. Maybe you think you're better than a player that's there, but the quicker you focus your energy on doing the things that will allow you to become a better player in the long term and be a dominant player at the minor league level, uh, the quicker you'll be realizing your goal and being an NHL player. Uh, I mean, let's look at Cam Schilling right now. Uh, Cam Schilling is under no illusions that he is going to be a Norris Trophy winner, as Paul Maurice mentioned the other day. But he's got 450 games of pro experience. He knows what his strengths are. He's willing to accept his limitations and play within them. He's a very smart player, keeps it simple. And then when you come into that situation as a call-up, you don't look out of place. So I'm not asking 22-year-olds to fast-forward and and think like a 30-year-old, but uh, having seen a lot of players who either A, felt sorry for themselves in the minors, or B, felt they were getting, uh, uh, what's the more politically correct term? I mean, getting the shaft uh, in the, by being in the minors. Yeah, jilted. Uh, the quick, <laughs> Sure. I mean, the, the jilted, the jilted player. I mean, it's a, it's a common thing at the American Hockey League level, uh, and it's an understandable thing having witnessed it firsthand. But when you have players that have been always been elite players, and when you get pushed through that funnel at the end, where now all of a sudden you're going from an elite player to a player on the periphery of an NHL roster, uh, how you're able to adjust to those things and adapt your role to find a place to fit in, I mean, the more success you're going to have. I mean, uh, no better no better thing than getting experience, but, I mean, that's what my experience of following the game has certainly taught me. And, and it, it does apply to guys like uh, like Nick Batan. And, I mean, uh, Jason Krog was a guy who played for the Manitoba Moose. Uh, he was that prototypical kind of 4A player, uh, Yes, if you play him with skilled players, he can be very effective. But, I mean, there's not a lot of jobs open in those top sixes uh, for most teams. So then you got to find a way to make a make an impact. And 
I will give Nick Patan a lot of credit. I think uh, he's gone through, uh, I mean, having been someone who's lost a parent, I mean, he's gone through something this year that is the most difficult thing that anyone in their life will go to, go through. Uh, he missed a lot of time and came back. He was trying to get himself, uh, you know, back up to speed. And when he came into the lineup, uh, he did a nice job. I mean, obviously the production numbers aren't necessarily there, but I thought he played a, a solid game when he was involved. And those were the games where the where the fourth line was getting uh, a few extra minutes. So I think uh, for him, he's got to keep working hard. Uh, I mean, is this, is it going to take a change of scenery for Nick Patan to become an NHL regular? That's entirely possible. But, uh, I mean, back to your original question, uh, there still are opportunities available for guys. Uh, there are always injuries and uh, opportunities that, that come up that, that you don't necessarily expect going into the year. You expect certain players to play certain roles, but uh, there are there is always a little bit of evolution, and, and that applies especially to young players when they're when they're ready to grab a little bigger bigger piece of the pie. And I mean, Jack Rosovic, he's a guy that uh, has played uh, very well coming out of a healthy scratch, and a guy who's adapting positions and some nights the ice time's not there, but uh, he has chemistry with Appleton and obviously had chemistry with Patan when those three guys played together with the Moose as well. And I think that's one of the trios that if Andrew Kopp is going to miss a little bit of uh, additional time, I think that's a, that's a trio that we might see here on this next homestand at some point. Yeah. I, I like uh, just your, your comments about Patan because uh, we forget or many people maybe forget that he did miss a bunch of time at the beginning. I think it did he miss uh, pretty much all of training camp and exhibitions. And then the first, I believe 11 games of the season, 12 games, something like that. Uh, I think yeah. he's only been back the last 11, but uh, right now I'm uh, more than Maurice. Uh, we I've, I've looked to blaming uh, Patrick Laine for not scoring on that pass from Patan and Andrew Kopp because that had some of those other <laughs> players finished on some right. of those passes, uh, those beauties, uh, then uh, he might have uh, three or four assists, and then it looks a little bit different uh, when you're considering who you're going to put in the lineup. But uh, anyhow, that's that's an aside. Uh, anyone who knows me knows that I'm a big uh, Patan fan, so uh, I, I appreciate what you shared about him there too. So that's uh, that's cool. So uh, moving along, it kind of actually ties into uh, you talking about your experience, um, you know, watch from media and also to uh, having been a player. When it comes to what is – the best fit, uh, the best answer, the best plan. Uh, who do you think has the best keys for success? Now, uh, we'll take fans out of it because fans are very, <laughs> like, it, it's derived from the word fanatic, and fans generally will not agree, and that's what Twitter's for. So it's a, it's a lot of fun to, to see how chaotic that can be. But I would say fans as a whole don't have the right answer. So who do you think, you know, would put up the best team together and have the best results maybe if a gm could build to any team that they wanted or the coach or would it be the players i mean i guess a gm if they could pick any team they could have you know 24 crosby's so within reason um the players who you know are playing for each other and there's obviously a chemistry and 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 what they have uh together and the friendships that go along with that too i think a lot of people always forget about the people dynamics of the fact that these are human beings that are friends and that they maybe there's players they hate playing with on the team and then they, you know, have fights or, or whatever it is. And that's why their game is off. It's not that they're, you know, the worst player ever, but who who knows what their day was like, right? Or fighting with their kids. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, or media, because uh, media, you guys uh, 
get to be real close to it, but still get to stand back and, and, and do your best to be objective about the whole thing. And you have nothing invested. You don't, you don't have the money like the owners. You don't have to think about salary cap or anything. So when, when it comes to probably having the best read on things, are the players too emotionally invested or media too, uh, too far away from it? Who do you think, uh, has the best read? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I'd love to say that I had all the answers, but if I had all the answers, I'd be, uh, uh, I'd be the general manager, right? Uh, I mean, well, maybe not. That, maybe if the general maybe if that's not the right answer. Maybe all the right answers are with the media, or maybe all the right answers are with the player. Maybe you'd be a player then, you know? So that, uh, that's the question. Who has no, the right no, answers? I, I, I wouldn't be a player. Uh, at 43, I'm, uh, I'm good at the Friday afternoon skate, but uh, no chance on the other side. But, uh, no, you know what? I, I mean, if it's, it's easier for the media because uh, there's no pressure on me. Uh, it's easy for me to make the optimal lineup. It's... Uh, uh, I don't, I'm not having to deal, I mean, I know what the salary cap is, but I don't have to deal with the internal strife. Uh, I think the head coach uh, has a very good idea of what his optimal lineup is, but sometimes you, it's hard to get to the optimal lineup. So, and I just mean that in terms of sometimes having been a player who is overlooked for players, coaches have their blind spots too. And I mean, if beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, a player, player A uh, works can go to a situation where he's a dominant player somewhere else, and he's just a hanger on in another spot. So, yeah. uh, I think the 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 combination of uh, head coach and general manager generally would would come up, and those are the best uh, relationships. I mean, when there's, I understand that some people think that that there's a the tug of war between Maurice and and Chevalier. I, I don't see that. I mean, I'm not I'm not in the meetings with them, and I certainly. Uh, they're not sharing private information uh, with me on lineup decisions by any stretch. But I, I think that the reason they've worked well together and have found players that have been able to fit into Paul Maurice's system is because they, they view players in a similar manner. Uh, they see how how they would fit in. But, I mean, it's always easy for the fans and the media to, to do it because the decision, even when we make bad decisions, what happens to us? Nothing. I mean, <laughs> you might uh, you might get a retweet from someone who says, "Oh, you're an idiot. How could you have ever said that?" Well, I mean, things change, and opinions change, and players change. So, uh, the beauty is that we have the ability to uh, form those opinions and have that kind of dialogue. And uh, sometimes it's debate. Sometimes it's one-way conversation. Uh, uh, sometimes uh, Twitter can be a uh, you know a place where there's a lot of uh, you know angst or uh, anger or some poorer things, but uh, for the most part, it, it just shows there's a lot of engagement in the community. And uh, I mean, just look at the way the city is uh, kind of stuck its chest out since the Jets have come back. Uh, it's fun to be having discussions about hockey and and about what you would do if you were in charge and. I mean, sometimes that's the best part. You can you can have all the opinions that you want, but uh, there is uh, you know no consequences for for those of us uh, that are not in those positions. Right. Well, yeah, and you used the term before the armchair coach, or armchair GM. It's like the, that's often used as like a negative connotation. I'm like that's literally no. being a fan. I know uh, you weren't you saying that, but when people yeah. use that online, it's like a negative thing. I'm like that's literally why. Uh, video games, uh, sporting video games exist is so you can kind of make your team and play your team and do what you want with your team and why we have these cards, like, right? So it, it is that part of interacting that is, shows th that engagement and that, that level of fandom and it's not problematic 
even if people disagree, it's, you know, as long as people are willing to learn from each other and uh, have some grace for each other, then, uh, then there, there's no, there, no reason why people can't agree as long as, you know, it's uh, the problem is online when you have the people that just are so entrenched in their opinion and don't see value in, in the other side. You got to see, right. see what the other side is saying. So um, there's one or, one or two of those. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a couple. We know. <laughs> um, before I let you go here, I'm going to ask you uh, one last thing, just to talk about the predictions a little bit before we got on in a little bit now. Uh, what are your predictions for um, the Jets season? And, and maybe if you could just before you kind of make some predictions, maybe about how many goals lining scores or uh, maybe awards that certain players win or how far you see the Jets projecting to, to go or where they finish in the West. Um, historically, have you – been good at, at predicting or do you feel like you you got a bit of a horseshoe up there or or you're not you're not that great at, at predicting because maybe we should just uh, delete this part <laughs> not even, oh no no even it's, all, your it's all good <laughs> one of the beauty i mean it's uh it's let's not kid ourselves uh predictions are nothing more than an educated guess or you hope that they're educated yeah. uh my, my playoff pool record has been pretty decent uh, in terms of the series predictions but uh i mean every year is different it, Paul Wiesick used to tell me that I should be, I should be betting my picks and that I would have made a nice little chunk of change. But I always told him that uh, you always say that in the year where you go 12 and three, but the year that you throw your money down, that's going to be the year that you go, uh, you know, three and 12. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in terms of the Jets, I mean, I did predict that uh, Lonnie would win the Rocket Richard Trophy and it would be over 50. Uh, right now, it's tough to predict the number. I mean, I would right now I would say, let's say 57. I don't think it's going to be 70, but it easily could be 60. Uh, but we also know that uh, sometimes there are uh, occasional dry spells that go with the incredibly hot heat waves. But I think he's improving as a player. I think he's added a little bit of Yager, Yager to his game. He's getting stronger on the boards and uh, doing the necessary things to improve. I don't know that there will be any other awards for the Jets. Uh, obviously, uh, Connor Hellebuck is not playing at a Vesna level right now. I think that's a combination of... Uh, team defense being not quite as crisp as maybe last year, but uh, I mean, as I've said before, I think that the one thing about Hellebuck's game is that he has allowed the softy to reappear in his game, and that was something that we didn't see much of last year. He almost virtually eliminated uh, that portion from his game, but uh, Connor's an incredibly hard worker. I don't think that uh, this will be a season-long struggle for him, and I think uh, he'll get it figured out eventually. Uh, in terms of the Jets, I think they will hang uh, hang with the top dogs in the Western Conference. It's, uh, I mean, I don't know what you want to call it, a four-horse race. or uh, I think they will be right up there with Nashville. Nashville's obviously done a fantastic job of uh, battled through some injuries. Uh, Pecorine has been, uh, it's funny, we, we talked, no one would have predicted going into this year that it would be Hellebuck that struggled and Rene that was <laughs> playing at a Vesna level based on what happened in that series, right? Yeah. I mean, Let's not kid ourselves. Uh, and even having said that, Rene did have a couple of strong games in the shutout. But uh, that's the unpredictability of the goaltender position. And uh, in some ways, it's the beauty of the NHL. I mean, nobody predicted the Buffalo Sabres would be uh, hanging with the Leafs. I mean, it's obviously a long season, and who knows if they can do it. But uh, I do think the Jets are a legitimate elite team. I think there was an adjustment period for them. Uh, I think they had struggled to some degree, not necessarily with the weight of expectation, but what comes with the weight of expectation, AJ, is that you get the other team's best almost all the time. Uh, 
Uh, the Jets used to be a team where the uh, opposition out of conference would often play their backup goalie. Now you're always getting the number ones, except maybe in a back-to-back. Uh, you're almost always getting the other team's best efforts. So I think some of that was part of the part of the reason they may have been a little bit slower out of the gate. But I mean, overall, I'm not going to tell you today that the Jets are, are uh, a lock to win the Stanley Cup. But uh, would it surprise me if they made the conference final again and and maybe found a way to make the Stanley Cup final? Uh, it wouldn't, but, I mean, they obviously ought to clean up a lot of areas, uh, a lot being that they got to be tighter defensively. They need to do a little better job with discipline, and, and they need better goaltending uh, if they want to get to that point. For sure. No, just uh, when you mentioned the thing about Line A potentially getting 60, right away what came to mind is uh, I looked up the schedule where you're, while you were talking there to see if we played Tampa Bay right at the end because <laughs> I, I'm, sure, yeah, I'm sure you remember Sam Close got his uh, 60th goal against the Jets in our building. And we do have a game, I believe it's game 66, if I uh, counted right, in Tampa Bay. So, uh, But I don't think Lina is going to score 60 by uh, game 66. But uh, who knows, he's... He's uh, shown that he can score five in a game. So if he does that a couple of times, he's got a nice little padding to, to build off of. That's for sure. But yeah. Anyhow, uh, Ken, thanks so much for, for taking the time. We'll, we'll end it there. Uh, we'll both get on with our, our nights, uh, but I really appreciate you taking the time and, uh, and doing this with us. And uh, if you're willing to, we'd love to have you on again. Sounds good, AJ. Thanks for having me. Have a great night. Yeah, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, Jets fans, welcome back to the uh, Jet-Centric podcast. Uh, it's Daniel here, and I'm joined today by Andrew Berkshire, who uh, writes a weekly article for the Winnipeg Free Press uh, about the Jets, and especially in the analytics uh, and the analytics-based articles and stuff like that. And he also does some other some other work. So, uh, hey, Andrew, how's it going? Yeah, it's going real well. Uh, this is my first year with the Winnipeg Free Press, and it's been pretty fun so far. I get to watch a pretty entertaining team in the Winnipeg Jets uh, more often than last year, which was still pretty often because they were a fun team to watch last year as well. Yeah, exactly. They're still they're still a fun team to watch this year. They've had a few uh, games that they made fun that they probably shouldn't have made so fun the last, in the last few weeks, but that's kind of the way I always say that's kind of like what the Jets do. They like to make it interesting for the fans. That's kind of what I go off of, and uh <laughs> Stuff, uh, stuff like that. So uh, we had just quickly touched you right for the the free press. This is your first year. What else? Uh, what else do you do in uh, hockey related uh, terms and stuff like that? Yeah. So basically, my job is I'm an independent contractor through SportLogic, which is a uh, data science or data analytics company for sports, and uh, I work for the Winnipeg free, free Press twice a week. I do two articles for them a week, and I do three a week for Sportsnet. And that's all I do for them. And other than that, I just have uh, my own personal podcast that uh, goes out or tries to do every week, but usually every other week, just because I'm pretty busy writing five research pieces a week. Yeah, five five research pieces pieces a week. There's only seven days in a week, so you kind of put out yeah. a lot of content, <laughs> a lot of content weekly, and uh, especially with your contracting with uh, sports. Sport logic is, is is that how I'm saying it uh, yes, properly? Yeah, yeah. Sport I mean, logic. if you okay. want, you could say it with a French accent if you want. Cause it's Montreal. Sport logic. Yeah, sport some logic, people yeah. say sport logic. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I just say sport logic. Okay, yeah, that's that's kind of just what I've heard everyone say. So just making sure I'm uh, getting it kind of right. You got um, it. So, so you uh, so you write the two two articles a week on the on the Jets um, for the Winnipeg Free Press. And most of those are analytic based from what I've seen and what the ones that I have have been able had the time to read. 
So I just want to kind of go over with you how, how the Jets are doing as a group, as a team, and some of their individual players and how like the, the, the top ones that some people might not think are good, but the analytics will back it up and some that people maybe think are good, but with eye test, but might not have the underlying numbers and how that relates back into it. So, so we'll start off first. How are the Jets doing collectively as a group, just well, overall analytics? Overall, I would say not as good as last year. Uh, I think most people watching them kind of draw that conclusion as well. They've been a little bit more inconsistent. Uh, the main difference that I've noticed is they haven't been as rock solid defensively as last year. Um, the last couple of years, actually, Paul Maurice has been one of the better defensive coaches in the NHL, and it was kind of hidden by, you know, Hellebuck had a rough year, and before that, you were stuck with Pavlich, which was never a fun situation. <laughs> and uh, last year, Hellebuck really came into his own, and it, and it showed in the numbers uh, when, when you looked at uh, his ability to stop shots from essentially outside the slot. There was nothing going in against the Jets. He was, like, incredible at keeping those weak goals away, and he was a little bit susceptible in the high danger areas, like right in front of the net, but it was not much different than league average and everywhere else he was way above. So it was like the Jets made his job a little bit easier and he rewarded them for that by pretty much never giving up weak goals, right? So the Jets never really gave up back-breaking weak goals at the bad times last year when Hellbuck was in net. He was just gave them solid performance night in, night out really consistent and that's essentially what you want from a modern starter right especially when you're not paying a huge amount of money and uh, when you have a team as deep at multiple positions as the Jets are it it worked out pretty much perfectly until they ran into the Vegas PDO machine in the playoffs (laughs) yeah the that Vegas series I that's one that I think we'll remember for a while until the Jets can get over that that hump if they if they ever do which I think they're probably capable of so you had mentioned the the Jets decor. Maybe we'll kind of start there compared this year compared to last year. Obviously, the one notable is that Toby Enstrom is gone. He's playing in uh, in his hometown there in Sweden, and that that's something that I knew at the time would probably have a pretty big effect on the Jets and their overall uh, their overall numbers this year. And I do believe it is, if I'm not mistaken. So maybe you can kind of dive into the decor specifically this year compared to last. Yeah, I mean, it's not just on the decor, the lack of uh, defensive play. It's on the forwards as well. But I do think they missed Toby Enstrom. I I know that I'm not as plugged in with, like, the general Jets fan opinion as, you know, some other teams. Like, uh, I don't follow as many uh, Jets fans, per se. I I follow a lot of bloggers and writers. And it seems like, for the most part, that group that I follow appreciated Toby Enstrom. But apparently he was, like, not super loved towards the end there, which yeah, I kind of yeah. get, right? He was he was injury prone. He was getting older and a little slower. But what wasn't appreciated about Enstrom was he was one of the best defensive defensemen in the NHL last year. And, you know, it's not by clearing the crease and making big hits. He was just really smart positionally, really smart with his stick. You weren't going to enter the the offensive zone with control with against Toby Enstrom. He was going to stop you at the blue line, poke the puck off your stick, or just freeze you a little bit and, and cause you to go offside. He was really good at that, really good at defending the slot, uh, blocking passes through the middle of the ice. And, yeah, he played limited minutes, and he played on the third pairing. But those kinds of minutes, when you have a player like that, that when you're bottom of the lineup, just – isn't ever giving up chances and you can combine a third pairing with a third or fourth line, whichever you'd rather call them as good as Tanev, Kopp and Lowry. 
you're doing really well, especially when you have the offensive depth up front that the Jets have, right? So if you are capable to balance that incredible high-end talent up front and not have a huge drawback at the bottom of your lineup, you're a very, very difficult team to play against. And and that's part of the reason why I think uh, the Jets were able to beat the National Predators last year in the playoffs, despite them being relatively equally matched teams on paper, it was the Jets' ability to score from the bottom of the lineup that really helped. And, you know, you could say that maybe they miss a guy like Joel Armia a little bit, but I think that the the young guys that they have that are kind of breaking in will, by the end of the season, fill that void uh, of Joel Armia well enough. I, I don't think that's an issue. I, I do think that they probably need to find a decent third-pairing defenseman to, to solidify that third pair right now. Just because, for whatever reason, uh, Tyler Myers has been more, incon- not necessarily inconsistent. He's had some good play, but the puck hasn't bounced his way, and he needs maybe a solidifying defensive presence with him because he's a decent neutral zone defender. But when he gets caught in his own zone, and I'm sure you would probably agree, he the lankiness doesn't help him, right? Like the puck kind of goes through him a lot. He's not uh, a Zaneo Chara where he's great at blocking the puck he can get really victimized by passes uh, through him. So I think a good defenseman at covering his position would really help the Jets out there. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that on Myers. And Myers isn't that great at clearing the puck out, like making that easy outlet pass and stuff like that. So they kind of need a, a puck mover with him. Whereas right now, it's this so far the season before he was injured was Joe Morrow. And mm-hmm. Morrow Myers is, uh, you're always kind of, cringing as you watch them out there especially in the defensive zone um Myers is like you had mentioned he's okay in the neutral zone and obviously he has that offensive skill that it just hasn't been put in the back of the net for him so far this year like he hasn't I'm not exactly sure what his actual point totals are I know his probably his ozone numbers are okay if we're talking analytics wise um so so that and that's something I said they need it to add at least one either top four defensemen to reshuffle reshuffle the how how the defensive lineup is or a better depth defenseman than what they have right now. And obviously we have uh, Sammy Niku coming up and I think once he gets those minutes and gets used to the speed of the, the NHL game, he'll he'll be he'll be pretty good. More so again leading towards the offensive the offensive side of, of the game, which obviously is very important as a defenseman these days and he'll figure it out in the D zone as he gets along and makes those mistakes that you have to make to learn how to not make those mistakes anymore right you know you know yeah, your capabilities exactly. you know what you can try you know what you can't do what you can do and what you should do and that's you just have to play to learn that and you have to play at some point and maybe now is the time for for Sammy Niku well it's so, probably um, a good time when you think about it as well I know uh, the Predators for example are inundated with injuries right now so the Jets can afford to make some mistakes and you know possibly lose a couple of games that they can win and still stay in the hunt for that division title uh, while the main team that's their competitor, and no disrespect to the Avalanche, I, I think they're great, but I don't think that uh, scoring run, that top line is on the last yeah. forever. <laughs> but uh, I, I think it's still Winnipeg-Nashville in that in that division. And like you said, it, you have the luxury at certain points to break in a player like Sammy Niku, who, you know, he may not be as positive a force at the beginning, but losing those, or not losing, but like allowing him to struggle in those minutes at first 
will have massive benefits by the end of the season. And I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of breaking in rookies and giving them lots of minutes early in the season and challenging them and letting them fail and continuing to throw them out there. Don't punish them for making mistakes because I feel like if the rookie or young player has a, the right attitude anyway, which I think most of them probably do to get to that point in the first place, they're going to be pissed at themselves for making the mistake anyway. They're going to not want to make it again. So just let them figure it out. And by the end of the year, you're going to be better than, you know, if you're playing Ben Sherratt 22 minutes a game in the playoffs. Yeah, exactly. Right. And like, uh, uh, Micah McCurdy, he, he said one time on, on Twitter and he said it publicly on this podcast, he said, why play a guy who you know is bad for versus a guy who might be bad, right? You should be yeah, playing the guy bad, that might, might be, be bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You have more chance of him being good than playing someone that you already know who he is and what he can do and what he can't do, right? And that's the case with Joe Morrow and Ben Sherrod, actually, at this time. We know we know who they are, and I mean, they're they're fine. I mean, they're, but there is the possibility of having a guy that can and probably will be better. So that's mm-hmm. kind of where where I'm at on that. So we'll jump up jump up to the forward groups, uh, the forward group right now, which obviously we had touched on a little bit already, and how talented they are and how like. They're, they're, they're obviously a super talented group. They can score pretty much at will. So I just want to talk about maybe the, the, the deployment and how Coach Maurice is using them and maybe overplaying the top lines versus not playing the fourth line so much. I just want to get maybe if you can give a little bit of insight into what you think and what maybe some of the numbers will say about the forward usage and kind of who's playing with who and when and that kind of thing. Well, I think he's he's being a little cautious for sure. And I would like to see especially Jack Roslovich get a little bit more ice time because I see – an extremely talented player there. Uh, I think last year when he joined the Jets, I guess mid-season, I think he played like the last, 40 or the 50 last games. Third. Yeah, the last third. Yeah, season, he so. was incredible, I thought, in, in limited minutes. And I just see so much potential there. And I like the chemistry that he had with Perot and Patan. I, I think that if you have a guy like Perot on that fourth line, you don't need to worry so much about them making – a huge amount of mistakes. I think he's a pretty safe player, despite the fact that he doesn't have, you know, the build that you would expect of of a great two-way player. He's a pretty good two-way winger. He can insulate them a little bit. But, you know, I I understand also that Maurice has an identity that he has the Jets play with, and that Lowry-Tanev-Cop line is quite effective and plays with that identity, right? That hard grinding and... uh, getting scoring chances off the four-check type of style. And, and I think teams are do have difficulty handling that line at times. So, so I kind of understand leaning on that top nine, especially when the fourth line has, uh, for most of the season, been outscored and outchanced. So I think it's changing a little bit, right? But uh, I, I guess it's Appleton drawing in over Pitan right now. I, I don't know much about Appleton. I haven't looked into him very much. But if he's a decent player, which I saw uh, – Gareth saying that, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure that he'll be fine and that's not a bad thing. And I, I don't think it's a bad thing to have a guy like Pitan be your 13th forward who can jump in at any time when there's an injury. Uh, I would like to see him get more of a chance because I think he has a lot of offensive skill that could really uh, add to the Jets' lethal combination. But uh, I think the other thing is the Jets are so good up front that they essentially have two first lines, right? Uh, we could argue that maybe Brian Little is not a first-line center. He's probably closer to mid-tier second-line center. But 
your wingers are fantastic with him. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. I think that you don't want to necessarily take away Patrick Liney's time at even strengths for Jack Roslovich and Nick Patan. So it's a tough thing to balance. I mean, I guess it's the kind of issue that only good teams have, right? Where you're like, oh, we don't have enough ice time for these good players. <laughs> Which is like, it's, you get frustrated sometimes as a fan, I'm sure, but at the same time, you have to like sit back and be like, we could have so many worse problems than this. Yeah, that's one thing I kind of like. I could say, oh, well, we could be a lot worse off. We have basically nine forwards that are that can pretty much score, right? And then you got the, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, the TLC, the kind of Lowry Cop line, who's a more chance uh, chance creating line, where their finishing is not that great in in comparison to the shooters and stuff we have on, the, especially our top our top four wingers or the the wingers that play in the top in the top six there. So that's something obviously we're very very fortunate to have such such a, a high powered and uh juggernaut, I'll say it, as a as a forward group as a top twelve or top thirteen. Um the one thing obviously uh, you had mentioned Mason Appleton, like he was the AHL rookie of the year last year. So obviously you don't get there just by getting lucky, right? And for uh, sure. Sammy Nico on the defensive end was the AHL defenseman of the year as a rookie in the AHL. So obviously he has a ton of potential. You don't become AHL rookie of the year or AHL defenseman of the year as a rookie for for no reason. You you earned that and you played exceptionally well, especially in the AHL. I mean, it's, it is a professional league. It's not as good as the, NHL, as the NHL, but this is where the guys develop and the league is there for a reason and, and has always mm-hmm. done a great job as, of producing top-end NHL talent, right? You look at the numbers and they're, they're very significant of guys that have spent time in the AHL have produced at the NHL, so... That's something that we always like to pay attention to and just go go from there. So I I, I did I, I didn't mention this before, but uh, just the goal. I'm not sure how into the goaltending stats you are, but I just want to talk about Hellebuck. I know you, we had mentioned it a little bit earlier, but he was a Vesna finalist last year, a Vesna candidate or however you want to word that. And this year he has struggled so far this year in the first in the first quarter quarter plus of the season. So I just want to maybe get your thoughts. I'm not sure how into the goaltending advanced stats you are, but if you can maybe just shed some light on what we're seeing this year compared to last year, you did touch on it a little bit with the the weak goals and such that in this year he's obviously letting in more. So maybe just focus on him just for a, a little a little blurb. Yeah, I, I actually wrote about Hellebuck a couple weeks ago for the free press and you know things may have changed in the last couple of weeks in terms of the numbers. I, I haven't been able to uh get back and you know put everything in front of my face again, but uh, compared to last season, his numbers, like in terms of like where goals are going in from, he's actually stopping a higher percentage in the high danger area. It's more the high slot that he's getting victimized. And the reason for that is the jets are allowing a lot more passes through the middle of the ice, which is forcing him to make stops with uh, more pre-shot movement. So like, I, I think Hellebuck is, probably in the top 10 tier of goaltenders in the league, but I don't think he's necessarily a perennial Vezza finalist. I think last year his numbers were definitely boosted a little bit by uh, the team that he played on. I, I think that he meshed really well with the way the Jets defended. And this year, I think in a lot of respects, his actual performance is just as good as last year. It's just that the shots that he's facing are significantly more difficult, and that's led to you know a drop in save percentage and more perceived struggles. And 
the thing is with that kind of thing with a goaltender where so much of it is in your head, you know, like you have to be strong mentally. If that continues over time, oftentimes the goaltenders themselves, the performance will begin to dip as well because they start internalizing the team-based struggles as their own struggles. And, you know, I've seen that with taking close looks at Carey Price and, and other goaltenders, you know, two Rask at times. But I think overall, Hellebuck is getting a little bit too much blame right now. I think he's been good. I don't think he's been a world beater by any stretch of the imagination, but I think he's giving the Jets a chance to win essentially every night. And uh, that's really what they want in terms of uh, goaltender performance because they're not a team that needs to have, you know, a savior. You know, they, they don't necessarily need that. It would be great if he turned into, you know, uh, prime age Henrik Lundqvist, but they don't necessarily need that to win. And, you know, maybe if he did that, he would become too expensive and the Jets are going to have cap problems soon anyway. So it, it might be better in the long run, hilariously, for him to look like he's struggling right now. And uh, that would be, you know, something yeah. the Jets don't have to worry about as much just because I think they're going to figure things out. Uh, I, I'm not worried about them as a team because they just have too much talent. Like, you look at them compared to other teams around the league, and they just have too much depth to fail almost. So I think you kind of take these struggles in the first half of the season and you work it, work it out, and then you get Paul Maurice to kind of figure things out as the season goes on, and you hope that by the time you hit the playoffs, you're hit, you're at the full stride. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And uh, you had mentioned Hellebuck, his, he's in the, the first year of a six uh, five-year six mil per so that's kind of you kind of need him to be to be at least league average started a little bit better mm-hmm. than league average probably so that's kind of and I know right now his his numbers aren't quite there save percentage wise uh, just I think he's hovering around 906 907 right now his last five starts haven't been great but every great goalie obviously does have those struggles throughout the season and obviously a five or six game sample isn't isn't that much of of what he's been capable, he's been an elite goalie at every level that he's yeah, played exactly. at. So it's just kind of just a just a rough patch, and they do have that new equipment this year, the, the the smaller chest protector that might be affecting it. He has been playing deeper on a few, but that's just kind of something that you just got to work through that a little bit and kind of figure it out. And he probably won't be a world beater, like you said, he won't do that. But they need him to be at least like league league average or better, right? Just like any any cup contender would need and that's yeah exactly something that i believe right so and he'll and he'll get back there and he probably won't be a vesna like obviously last year his numbers were just incredible and that was aided a lot by the easier shots he faced and this year they're kind of just struggling to prevent those high danger chances and those cross ice passes and stuff are just hard especially for maybe a bigger guy like he's six foot six or something so it's kind of kind of hard to to move across all the time like that and stuff like that and there's a lot of other underlying effects that that are uh, created by that so we had talked uh quickly just early uh just before we we uh, pressed the re- record button here about uh about sports sports logic and their uh their microstats so i don't know you can't go too deep into that but maybe just give me an idea of what that is and obviously it deviates from the publicly available so just how much more in-depth it is is it then what we are available to look on like natural statric or other websites that are publicly available? Yeah. So it, it definitely depends on like what kind of access you have. And like as a uh, media contractor, I don't have access to everything that they have. Uh, teams would have more access to things. So, 
any team that has a contract with SportLogic would probably not necessarily be using the same exact stats that I do. Um, also, there are some teams who don't necessarily buy the statistics from SportLogic. They would buy the raw data just on like a hard drive and create their own statistics from it. So there's all sorts of stuff that you can do. But in terms of depth, uh, essentially it's a computer program that measures every single event that happens on the ice. So uh, a sick check, uh, you know, a, a giveaway, anything you can imagine, every pass, every pass attempt, everything is collected and put together. So if you carry the puck across the blue line, it, it's noted. If you carry it across the red line, it's noted. If you pass the puck to your defense uh, defense partner, it's noted. And, you know, what your pass success rate is, what your pass success rate is relative to the team that you play on. Is, there's What I've used so far is really only tapping at the surface of what SportLogic data has available. Uh, you know, the rigorous nature of how often I write prevents me from getting too deep into the statistics. So there's just what I can come up with on, on a weekly basis, essentially. There's uh, really no telling what could happen in the next couple of years with sport logic data and how, as it gets more detailed and, uh, you know, we think of more things to try out and, and uh, put together. Yeah, that's a good. And obviously analytics are always evolving, especially now that it's become very prevalent in the game today and how people are starting to value that more. And that's something that I myself, like I don't understand all of it all the time, but I'm open to being informed and to seeing what's out there. And I do believe that it does have an effect of how teams should be using it or how they interpret the data and what, like, you know, what are they using it for? How are they interpreting it how are they breaking it down like how is that affecting their late game decisions or their early game decisions and how they roll out the players together and that that kind of stuff so that's something that's very interesting for me and obviously it's just something that I enjoy and not everyone enjoys that some people are just like I just watch the game and use the eye test which is totally fine I mean you watch you watch how you want and you fan how you want and that's just something for me and I know a lot of others especially some of our listeners that'll be listening to this will appreciate us kind of touching more into the analytical side and just kind of what the, the differences of different kind of stats and stuff are available. And obviously you said there's just an infinite amount available. It's just how what's available publicly and what's and how the teams themselves are actually interpreting it and how, how much, you know, and that, and that kind of stuff. So that's something that's just, just interesting to me. And just, I like seeing it evolve and, kind of even get mentioned more and more on like say a sports net broadcast or those kind of things is I think it's very important for the game today. And I'm sure you'd, you'd agree with me on that. Yeah, absolutely. Especially considering my job. depends on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You kind of need that for your, your paycheck there and stuff. So, so I think I covered most of what I wanted to, I didn't want to get too deep into too much stuff because it gets a little com complex and obviously the, you, you write and you get paid, paid to do this. So um, you had mentioned, I'll just let you plug, uh, plug your your uh your jobs again and what you do and if you have anything else you want to plug or anything else you'd like to add just uh feel free to do that and then we'll just wrap it up yeah sounds good uh yeah you can always find my stuff on sportsnet.ca and uh, winnipeg free press and uh, i have a podcast called uh, the andrew berkshire podcast where i talk about all sorts of stuff from hockey to uh movies with my buddy arun so yeah it, there's you can find me all over the place it's 
pretty much hard to avoid at this point. <laughs> uh, I'm everywhere. There's always something new going on. Okay, that, that sounds great, and I I do enjoy your your good uh, good follow on Twitter, and I like reading stuff of uh, yours when I can. Obviously, it's hard. There's so much so much to read and so much to take in. You only have time for so much, right? So for sure, that's just the way that's just the way that. So uh, thanks, Andrew, for uh, taking uh, taking some time, a chunk out of your day today. Your your very busy day. Your very busy life that you live there, so I, I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, hopefully maybe we'll have you on a little bit later in the season. We could have the same conversation again of how the Jets are doing and see see if they've improved or maybe even regressed and uh, been not not so great at the at that time. Sounds good. Perfect. Thanks. All right, my pleasure. Talk to you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Bye.